We just have to make sure the experience for the consumer is better than what they have at home with their 85-inch television. And that's the whole thing, right? There's people where you can check out with your concessions in a timely manner. You sit down in the theater and the screen is in good condition. The light level is where it should be. The sound is fantastic. And the masking is working. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Danny Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here once again with our co-host and colleague, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro. And in this week's episode, we're going to be going over the latest news in theatrical exhibition, also talking about the reaction to the Academy Awards that occurred over the weekend. We're going to be looking forward to next weekend's release of Shazam! Fury of the Gods from Warner Brothers, the latest title in the DC Extended Cinematic Universe. And in our feature segment, we have an interview with producers of Scream 6, William Chirac and Paul Neinstein. They're part of the Project X production team that takes on a lot of horror-themed films in the marketplace. They talk a fantastic opening weekend result for the latest Scream sequel, the highest opening weekend in the franchise. So let's get right into it. Rebecca, welcome once again. I know you watched the Oscars, but before we get into that, you got to tell me about your movie going. We always open with this. Did you go to the movies? Did you watch anything last weekend? No, as this weekend was all about the Oscars for me. And as you know, yesterday, i.e. the Monday after the Oscars, you know, they always go so late. I was just zombified and taking naps and recovering from it's one of my favorite nights of the year you know it was it was that heavy the oscars were that i mean there was no viral physical assault to sort of keep us interested it's more the you know excuse to hang out with friends to talk about movies to talk crap about people's dresses and and all that it's it's a nice kind of social thing but yeah it didn't end up getting home until like 3 30 so it's part of movie-going culture, and it's an important part of movie-going culture. I haven't seen the ratings here, but I think, unfortunately, we're not going to see that big ratings bump that everybody was hoping for. They are up from last year, which isn't saying much, but I don't understand. that. I mean, that's one of the things my friends and I were talking about, this concern or hand-wringing about Oscar ratings. They're never going to rate well. They're never intended to. No. They're for film nerds who are yeah. going to watch a three-hour long, like, who cares? It's not must-see television. No. You're not going to make the time to sit down and watch it, unless it was something that was a part of your life a while back. And I think it's really just retaining whatever sliver of an audience the Academy Awards can muster, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think film culture, honestly, may benefit from less relevance of the Academy Awards moving forward. But right now, it's still playing a role. And it's at least putting a spotlight on certain films. Let's open with that, because we have Best Picture here. I think a surprise when we look at the year as a whole. Everything, Everywhere, All at Once from A24. When was this released? Like almost a year ago? A year ago, maybe even. I think like really, really early April, the first weekend of April, regardless. And, you know, I was trying to think what other Best Picture winners have opened that early and still been able to sustain that level of interest and kind of remain in public consciousness for that long. The only thing I could come up with 
is that Silence of the Lambs, which came out in February and it won, but that was like early 90s. So, I mean, I think that was one of my main takeaways here from the Oscars. A24 was by far the studio that walked away with the most awards, most of them for everything, everywhere, two of them for the whale. People were thanking A24 in their speeches. So it was definitely kind of a spotlight on them. And I, you know, I don't think that everything, everywhere, all at once would have one nearly what it did, if anything, if it hadn't been for A24's theatrical strategy, their kind of slow rollout. I mean, if this film gets released on streaming a year ago today, I don't think it's getting Oscars. And then the second highest studio that won is Netflix, which took home mostly stuff for the Best Foreign Film nominee, A Quiet on the Western Front, which won some tech awards as well. And it won Best Animated for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I struggle to think any of this will be relevant in 10 days or anybody will remember any of this. But that's It'll the just Oscars. Go back into total obscurity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, really just a total afterthought in film culture at large. It's really just a ratings grab in a very limited way for whatever television network has the rights to it. Speaking of afterthoughts, I can't remember if it was one or two Oscars ago where movie theaters obviously were really struggling they didn't really get mentioned at all in the Oscars. <laughs> there was no like support of movie theaters. and Yeah, that was the uh, Steven Soderbergh muted Oscars. It was 2021. And it was a year where I think the most we got was the uh, Matthew McConaughey outside of an Alamo Draft House commercial, which was just like a passing mention. But this year, it was a little bit more involved, right, Rebecca? Yeah. There were some theatrical shout-outs in the show. In Jimmy Kimmel's opening monologue, it was specifically mentioned, you know, these films are made for the big screen. This is the big screen experience is the best way to watch a movie. And God bless AMC and Nicole Kidman, the ad that keeps on going, because uh, <laughs> there were there was one or two jokes at Nicole Kidman's expense about how they let her out of that abandoned AMC. She took it well. Like, God, that ad, just God bless it. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. It's sort of like like jumped the shark immediately and has yeah. just gone full circle in like post-ironic appreciation. Yeah. I love that AMC's like even selling merchandise on it. Oh yeah. I'm getting you a, a onesie with the onesie that they make when you have your kid. Yeah. Oh, you just, you just let the cat out of the bag here. Yeah, By the way, I'm it. having a kid. There we go. And there's like <laughs> many friends that don't know. It's fine. We'll keep it in the edit. People yeah. have to find out somehow. Yeah. So when I'm gone for paternity leave, just know that I'm going to be swimming in Nicole Kidman merchandise for my baby <laughs> registry for my yeah. upcoming child. Though Cinemark actually also had like a kind of a cameo during the pre-show. I don't know if you remember, Daniel, a few months back, the quote unquote popcorn guy went viral on TikTok for just having a lot of style and flair for the way he scoops popcorn. He's an employee. Love it. Love Jason Grosbowl at the Corpus Christi Century 16 Cinemark. And he was there in the pre-show, you know, doing his thing and like having a good time and really making an art out of popcorn scooping. So I thought that was that was really cute. I mean, I think probably I and most of the people who watch the Oscars, we also tune into the pre-show because like the dresses are arguably of the same importance as the films when it comes to the Oscars. So good for him. Good for him. And it's it's a little bit of support that we like to see on the studio side, sort of reflect on the folks that work day-to-day in movie theaters and help these super wealthy, privileged people get to those positions. It's That success is based off the hard work of people that work in movie theaters. I would love to see more, but hey, it's a great start that we had this featured in this edition of the Academy Awards. I think the way to increase viewership on this is just put it off of network television, put this show on YouTube, 
have that man that asks inane questions while celebrities eat chicken wings. Just have that be the format. Just give everyone spicy chicken wings and ask them, like, questions some research intern found on Wikipedia. That will at least, I think, speak to this generation and might actually get me to watch the show. I think that would make for an interesting awards show. You can contact me, daniel.laurie at boxoffice.com if you want to hire me to produce this. I can't guarantee much, but I think I'll do a better job than Soderbergh did in 2021. I've got a hunch that this chicken wing idea will be better. Yeah, They did have a, an extended cocaine bear cameo. Oh, snap. I didn't. Wow. The cocaine bear showed up. Yeah. For best visual effects. It was Elizabeth Banks and a guy in a giant bear costume that like, this is what it would look like without visual effects. But yeah, the cocaine bear was hanging it up. Best picture 2024. I'm calling it right now. Yeah. You know what? We talked about this offline. I'm also calling it right now. Number one Halloween costume in Chelsea in the West Village in New York City, cocaine bear. And that goes in multiple ways. There are different ways you can interpret what cocaine bear will look like in a New York City Halloween. I think it's going to be a great costume. I'm looking forward to seeing the cocaine bear in all its iterations this Halloween. Well, speaking of Halloween, I mean, this was not to have an extremely awkward transition, but this was uh, the first screen <laughs> movie that kind of to have Halloween as a central part. It had some good Halloween costumes. Well, was it set in Halloween? Because I don't know. The way that, that Scream 6 is set, it makes you think that since everyone is in costume, it might be Halloween. It might also just be a Tuesday on the L train, to yeah. be completely fair. Like you, you really can't tell the difference depending where you are in the city. An entertaining film. It didn't work for me all the way. Scream 6, but it definitely worked at the box office. A $44.5 million opening weekend for Scream 6. The highest in the franchise. A number one debut. We've got an interview here with the producers of the film coming up in the feature segment. But Rebecca, what are some mainline talking points from this wonderful debut? I mean, it definitely feeds into the narrative that we've been discussing that audiences love horror films. Scream 6 did open higher than several recent horror releases like Smile, The Black Phone, Megan, which, as you know, those were successful films. It's not like they didn't make any money. Yeah, open to 22.6 million overseas for a global debut of 67.1 million, also a high for the Scream franchise. I mean, I got to imagine that Scream 7 is in the works, that those discussions have been happening. I don't know if they're going to, you know, rush it into production and try to get it in theaters in the first few months of 2024. <laughs> they very well could. They'd probably do well when it comes out. I hope they take it to space. I didn't ask this to the producers. I should have, because we're already doing the take things out of a place and put it in like a horror sequel setting. You have Jason Takes Manhattan. Just go Jason X with the next one. Put him on a spaceship. See what Jenna Ortega and Melissa Barrera can do in a spaceship against Ghostface. That sci-fi space horror genre mashup didn't really work for 65, featuring astronaut Adam Driver versus dinosaurs. Opened in third place to 12.3 million behind Creed 3, which was a holdover. I mean, I don't think anyone was really expecting much from this, but it globally, it did not open to 20 million. Like it was under 20 million globally. So I think this is probably the last time anyone's going to be talking about 65, honestly. It's going to end up at a DVD bin of a CVS pharmacy somewhere across the country. Uh, yeah, it's a movie that I don't think was particularly well promoted. Has a great or star. promoted at all. <laughs> really? Or promoted at all. Yeah. I mean, you'd expect, you know, if you can land someone like Adam Driver and make the financial commitment to make this movie, 
is it going to kill you to throw him at a couple late night shows, buy a couple ads? I don't know. But okay, it was treated as an afterthought. It performed as an afterthought. The positive news here, going back on the wins from the weekend, is uh, Creed 3 dropping 53% in its sophomore frame, an equal drop to the sequel. That's a 27.1 million dollar sophomore hold for the latest in the Creed movies. It's a movie that keeps on performing, Rebecca. I'm happy for it. I know it's still retained some of those IMAX screens. It's going to lose them this weekend, however, because we've got the opening of Shazam, Fury of the Gods, the latest in what we have to call it. It's what Russ Fisher said earlier this year, a lame duck DCEU franchise because there's about to be a massive reboot in the entirety of the DC universe. Some concerns based on that right now, the opening weekend forecast that we have on this title is between 35 and $45 million. Not great. We are looking at a scenario where Creed 3 and Scream 6 both easily, easily outgross the opening weekend of the Shazam sequel. But uh, I don't know what we can expect, right? I mean... I think the big question here is we're looking at a scenario where Shazam Fury of the Gods doesn't crack 100 million, which maybe two years ago wouldn't have been a big deal. But we're back in a post-pandemic 2023 now. And our range for the total domestic run is coming in right around like 80, 82 million to 115. So I guess, you know, the figure to look at will be those second weekend drops because just as it is kicking Creed 3 off of IMAX screens, it is very shortly after it's release going to get kicked off IMAX screens because we have just like a deluge of summer Hollywood tent poles that are coming up. We're also having really steady counter-programming options. And kind of looking from a macro view, Daniel, we do have the NATO Foundation just released their first annual cinema report that kind of gives that overview of where the cinema industry in North America stands now in terms of box office. I know you're very familiar with the report. What were some of the key takeaways there? So as you mentioned, this is coming from the Cinema Foundation, which is an offshoot of the National Association of Theater Owners that brings together exhibitors, studios, vendors in the space, encompassing the entire theatrical exhibition community. A wonderful report that you can find on the landing page for this podcast on the episode notes. We'll we'll put the link there to download it. Let's start with the top line headline here, Rebecca. We've had a nearly 6% growth in the number of movie screens worldwide since 2019. So this horrible catastrophe event of the pandemic that we thought would decimate the industry it didn't. Things got a little rough back there, if we it remember did. correctly. But but there is a recovery in place, and that includes a worldwide bump in the number of movie theater screens worldwide from 200,000 in 2019 to 212,000 in 2022. North America, however, is seeing a consolidation. We saw a loss of about 2,000 screens in the same time period, from 44K in 2019 to 42K in 2022. So that is a consolidation of about 5% in the US and Canada, which isn't terrible. If we remember, there weren't that many government initiatives here that helped the industry the way we had in other regions. So there were multiple European markets that were a lot friendlier from a government standpoint 
to keep movie theaters open. That wasn't exactly the case in the U.S. and Canada. And we see, as a result, a 5% loss. And the government assistance that did come along to help did not do anything for publicly traded companies, which are the exactly. major That's companies the major that are circuits. mostly the ones consolidating and getting rid of theaters that didn't make as much. Exactly. So it's a 5% loss here in North America in the number of movie theater screens, but a nearly 6% bump worldwide. You know, a positive and negative in, in those numbers. Talking about the trends, we see the share of premium large format screens in North America continue to tick up. We've been saying this is one of the biggest trends since cinemas reopened during the pandemic. We now have a 14% share of PLF screens wow. in the North American market. They are responsible for a huge chunk of box office, I think a bigger and bigger percentage as we look at opening weekends. But the fact that 14% of the market is driving such an important part of the business, I think tells you something about the future of this industry. Yeah, I just hope we don't go too far in the other direction where focusing on premium experiences at the expense of making your quote unquote normal screens feel premium, just making them, you know, good, normal, regularly priced screens. I mean, I think maybe we are at a danger of pricing some people out, or at least the perception that we're pricing some people out. I mean, mm -hmm. I, speaking of, you know, our interns, just speaking with them about their movie going habits. And it's just kind of assumed, I think, by people in that sort of Gen Z digital native age range that movie tickets are just going to be way too expensive for it to become a regular habit. Yeah, and I think there's a perception issue with that as well that the Cinema Foundation report tries to address, that there is a big public relations challenge to clearly state that the average ticket price adjusted for inflation is lower today than it was in 1971. In 1971, the average ticket price was $1.65, which translates to $11.92 for inflation today, whereas today, in 2022, the average ticket price is $10.53. So it has maintained pace with inflation, but that's not what the public is seeing, because I think there's a lot of confusion, as you note, as premium large format drives up that average ticket price and consolidates the attention of moviegoers to one auditorium, to premium priced screenings, I think there's a PR challenge in clearly communicating there are multiple price points to go to the movies today. I think that's one of those issues that the Cinema Foundation's report is trying to address. It makes sense. I mean, if you only go to one or two movies a year, you're probably splashing out. You're probably going to the big tentpole, you know, a Marvel, Avengers, DC type situation. And you may very well think, oh, that's all tickets cost that much. Yeah, and I think it's still going to be a, a thin line to walk as we move forward. I think one of the great things about this report is that it had such a wide reach with the exhibition community. The Cinema Foundation ran a poll with exhibitors representing around 20,000 screens in North America, which is around half of the screens in the domestic market. In that poll, Rebecca, 39% of exhibitors said they're planning on adding more premium large format screens over the next three years. And that's not the only premium that, we're, that is going to be seeing investment. We also saw that 54% of exhibitors plan on upgrading sound systems in their auditoriums over the next three years. 53% of them plan on upgrading projectors. That probably means laser because that's the newest technology, better light levels, more cost savings. And then, of course, seating, which I think is the biggest differentiator between movie theaters right now for consumers. 
these big recliner seats, 42% of circuits responded they plan on expanding the footprint of recliners across their circuit in the next three years. And finally, this is something that all our F&B colleagues have been yelling from the rooftops, just how profitable having an alcohol service strategy in your cinema can become. This is probably the biggest change in exhibition in terms of revenue in the last five years. It's just the rise of alcohol service in North America. 37% of respondents, of exhibitors participating in this poll, saying that they plan on adding more alcohol service to their locations in the next three years. I think the future of this industry is going a little bit more premium, is focusing more on the experience. And that's actually something that the producers of Scream 6 that did join us here in our feature segment shortly do bring up. The need for cinemas to continue investing on the movie-going experience. Get that tech right. Get that hospitality element right. It's such an important part of the conversation. And let's use that as a transition, Rebecca, to bring in William Chirac and Paul Neinstein into the conversation coming up shortly after this break. A wonderful conversation where we cover the impact of that opening weekend of Scream 6 and what they believe the future is going to be for theatrical movie going from their perspective as producers. The Box Office Company has developed the tools and services to empower you to take charge of your digital marketing. And we are committed to continuously evolve with the latest trends and provide a seamless moviegoer experience. We're excited to share our latest addition to the Boost ecosystem. Our food and beverage ordering platform streamlines the purchasing process, so concessions are always one tap away. Whether they'd prefer to pick up concessions at the kiosk or have them delivered directly to their seats, Guests can tailor their experience and even leave gratuities for service that keeps them coming back. Contact us to get started at sales at boxoffice.com. And we are back here in the feature segment of this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast with Scream 6 producers Paul Neinstein and William Sherrick. Guys, Congratulations on a fantastic number one opening weekend here in North America. I do have to say before we get started, you guys are braver than most. We booked this interview for the Monday following opening weekend before we had preview grosses in. So by like Wednesday of last week, you guys were committed to have this conversation with a bunch of exhibitors, not knowing how this was going to play out, but it played out fantastically well. So I'm glad it's in this context. Otherwise, uh, yeah, it might have been an interesting chat. We would have just spent a lot of time blaming them. <laughs> By the way, 100%. It wasn't our fault. It was the theaters. Couldn't get it out there. <laughs> well, guys, thank you again for joining us. Let's start with this. I mean, fantastic numbers here for the franchise. A $44.5 million opening weekend. Number one debut. I believe it's the highest opening weekend for the Scream franchise, a great benchmark. Was this along your expectations? Did you have expectations coming into opening weekend? Because of course, the last one came out barely even a year ago. It's been a quick turnaround here. It has, and I think that, you know, from an expectation standpoint, I never tempt the movie gods. So I look at it personally just saying, we're really proud of the movie we made. We delivered the movie we went off to go shoot. 
And the fact that everybody in the world agreed just is is gravy, right? All you can do is make the movie you really want to go make. But you never know. And we're just, we consider ourselves very lucky sitting here Monday morning with the results. And everybody just did a great job. The marketing was spectacular. The theaters got behind our marketing, you know, our standees and our one sheets were everywhere. And audiences just seemed to like it. I think, look, the great news about this one, and, and I think William's 100% right in everything he just said, is that everybody from production to marketing to distribution to even the theaters were firing at 100% or 150%. And, you know, you get a good feeling with that kind of support, but you never know, right? I mean, you know, you could have everything lined up perfectly and then have a release that doesn't meet expectations or exceed, in this case, expectations. But it just had that snowball feeling of everybody believing in what we did, which was nice because you don't always get that. This one came out in March. Again, not the corridor that we usually would associate big grosses for this franchise, for this IP, and another tight turnaround. Could you tell me a little bit about the dating of this? Because... As we mentioned a second ago, the first one basically had just opened before the ink was dry on the contract to get a sequel going and then to put it on the schedule in March. What was your confidence coming into this? Well, I think that it doesn't feel like a midsummer movie, right? So when you look at a calendar, you're either pre-summer or you're waiting till fall, winter. And I think when we looked at it, we knew the movie we had and Paramount and Spyglass saw that date in March and we planted the flag. And then a couple months ago, they even moved it up three weeks, right? We were initially March 31st, I believe. We moved it up to the 10th, which they just saw, they saw a clear runway and we grabbed it. And, you know, look, the benefit of having, of seeing the movie got everybody excited to say, we can, we can succeed in this window. And hindsight 2020, they were all right. And, you know, we were proud that they were willing to date us here. And as we see the box office over the last couple of years, a clear trend that I think emerges in 2022 that's actually kicked off by uh, Scream 5 in January is just the overwhelming success and reliability of the horror genre at the theatrical box office. It's something we saw time and time again, whether it was a small independent film breaking through or a big franchise IP from Bloomhouse just breaking the box office in the marketplace. Horror had a resiliency and consistency for movie theaters that very few genres had. Now, you guys have a lot of experience in this genre, and you know this genre can succeed in streaming and home video just as well as theatrically. But why do you think horror has connected with movie-going audiences so well in this transition period for movie theaters? You want to be scared with your friends. It's a communal experience, right? I think that's exactly it. I mean, there's there's certain types of movies, horror genre, which is, I think, on the top of them, that are in more enjoyable when you're with a group of people, right? And, you you know, yes, you can have a group of people on a streaming platform. It's just different, right? It's There is something to be said to seeing a movie in, a, in an engaged audience with friends that heightens the experience. And this genre has proven that time and time again. We didn't create that. I mean, it's, we're the beneficiary of it, but it's exactly that, I think. William, you were saying that there's something to the communal experience of going to the movies and just being able to be scared next to your friend or next to your date, being able to, to behave in a way that you kind of are a little embarrassed by, but it feels better in community. Well, it feels better in community. I think that because genre spans age ranges, 
especially horror, you end up having a great sort of that, you know, when you look at that under 35, that's a go to the movie group of kids, right? So you end up in a world where you're being driven by a younger audience. They want to be social. They want to be in public. They want to go do this together. And then, you know, to use Paul's term, that snowball effect, it's where everybody's supposed to be. So you then, if you have a good movie with playability, you then start hitting the older crowd as well. And now you're supposed to go see it. You have a built-in fan base too, right? Not every type of movie has a consistent fan base and horror has, and the Scream franchise in particular, but horror in general, there are just fans that like to see things a certain way. And it's, again, we're fortunate that for us, that's this group. And it's not only the domestic audiences. It was a great international opening weekend as well. A top three finish in every single major market where you guys opened. Numbers that are 60% above the international figures from the prior entry in the franchise. This was a franchise that a lot of people have a lot of fond memories for. But I think there was a pause between the fourth installment and when you guys became associated with the IP in the fifth one. The fifth one was able to revive that energy here domestically and overseas. What is it about horror that that you think can also connect at a global level? Because we usually say that comedy has a hard time exporting. Usually it's action movies or superhero movies that we associate. Oh, of course, it sells well internationally. But as we see here, this genre has great, great potential internationally. Look, I think that you can be scared in any language. And I think that helps. I think the world has also gotten a lot smaller over the last 10 years. I think dubbing and subtitle, local, localizing content has gotten better and better and better from a dubbing and, and subtitling standpoint. So I think the world's just, it's so much smaller now mixed with the fact that you can be scared in any language. And I think that, you know, we're also beneficiaries of that. And I also think when you make a good movie, and we're really proud of this one, Matt and Tyler really directed a great movie. It works and it works all over the world. And we were just, we're very lucky that we got out in all these territories. The world is also in a safe, in a good place right now from a health standpoint and COVID. And I think people are looking to get out and go places and a movie theater is a great place to go. And that helped us across the board. Yeah. I mean, it's the theatrical box office feels to us like it's, it's back in a massive way, right? I mean, you had Creed open to big numbers and have a really good hold. We had a great weekend and I think you're going to see that for the next couple of weeks with some very big releases coming out. So I think people are ready again to be back in the theaters, which is nice. I mean, we were super proud of, of the last one and we opened in the middle of a massive pandemic and a spike in the pandemic. But, you know, it's people are ready to experience not every movie, but certain types of movies again in that kind of setting, which is what they were made to be viewed in, which is, you know, makes us super happy about that. I think we're also seeing great diversity in the marketplace. At least here in North America, moviegoers have the option of seeing Creed 3, Cocaine Bear, Scream 6, uh, this coming weekend, uh, the new Shazam film. There's a diversity in titles in the marketplace that frankly wasn't there in the last couple of years. I think Scream 6 came, was able to be an inflection point this weekend with those numbers. We also talked about very briefly on the role of the producer, especially right now, where you're not only producing films for a theatrical release, you're also looking at different platforms, especially with the type of films that you produce over at Project X, your company. What is it about an IP, not even an IP, but but a film, a project that you think deems it 
a theatrical release? Is there something innate in an idea or a project where you think it's better positioned for cinemas than opposed, say, streaming? It's an interesting question. Look, I think from Project X standpoint, we are all what I'll call kids of the 80s. If we can go theatrical with something, we're going to want to go theatrical with something. It's the way we want to make movies. It's the way we want to see movies. Even if it's made for streaming, doesn't mean it can't have a theatrical release. And my hope is that's where everything goes. I think it is still the best way to see a feature film. So we kind of look at it the other. I don't, I don't actually think about it that way. I go, anything can work theatrical. And part of that is hope, just because it's my favorite medium. And Paul can speak for himself, but I, I like thinking of everything as a potential theatrical play. No, I think that's right. Look, I mean, I, I grew up, I am a, I love the big popcorn movies, right? That's what I grew up on. And it's the experiences I had as a kid. It's what we try and gotten our kids to feel that way. And I think the way that we look at almost everything is let's make the most commercial version of whatever we're making. And a lot of times that means theatrical, right? And look, it's not always going to mean it. And there are certain movies that, that may not lend themselves to the type of production spend, although we try and be really mindful and make the most responsibly priced movie that we can. But our goal is always to make the best version of whatever it is. And part of that in our minds is we would always love to see it theatrically. It doesn't always come to fruition, but it feels like that is down the path for everything that we look at. Were there any special promotions or initiatives that you saw in cinemas that you found interesting, whether that is a special concessions item or a special campaign in a specific city to promote the release that you found engaging? Yeah, so I think there were a handful of things. One, you know, this movie had all the fun ghost face popcorn holders, cups with ghost face on it, because we also did a 3D version, which is specific to theatrical. There was a pre-release 3D fan event that had a limited edition one sheet that went out with it, all of which I think you can only get an experience in a theatrical release, right? You can't do that for home entertainment. So I think we had a handful of things that provided exactly what you're talking about. In terms of the 3D release, I find that fascinating. Uh, was there a specific time or a specific moment that you saw 3D grosses as something that pointed towards having a special 3D version of the film? Because it's a format that hasn't really found consistency over the last couple of years. Look, I think that the answer is I'm a big fan, partly because I had started a decade ago what became the largest 3D conversion company in the world. So I have a, a special love for it. And I think that we made a movie that, that was perfect for the experience. I think that the reason it hasn't been as consistent is a little bit of everybody's to blame, right? The theaters didn't keep up with the quality of the experience. And the studios didn't put enough marketing over time through in the certain titles that went 3D. I think this time around, Paramount supported it. They did it. The release was amazing. They did a great job in the 3D marketing of it. And they had some stuff that was specific to the stereo version of the movie. But over time, I think, you know, that 10 years after Avatar, a lot of stuff came out in 3D. They didn't market all of it, and the experience wasn't up to par in all the theater chains. And I think that if you're going to pay more for an experience, it needs to be a better experience, and the quality needs to be perfect. So everybody has to be on board with that. Yeah, and I think, look, it has to be not a gimmick, right? It has to be that the movie can support that type of release. And fortunately, we, we believe that we made that kind of movie. 
And it wasn't an add-on just to try and, you know, differentiate in the marketplace. And, you know, I think there was a period of time, and William knows way better than I do, just because the, you know, the business he, he started and ran, not everything needs to be in 3D. A lot deserving of it, but not everything. And we felt that that was additive to this film. Wonderful. Any other uh, messages you'd like to send to our listeners in the world of theatrical exhibition uh, while we still have you here? Look, I think that as the one thing I would say as a producer and somebody who truly believes in the theatrical experience, I think that as things come back out of the pandemic and you're seeing a slate of theatrical films in 23 that really has the potential to go back to a steady state of the theatrical experience. It's time to invest. It's time to make sure that the theaters, people don't leave going, I have a better experience at home. I think that's the best thing we can ask for as producers. You know, we I, we went around Friday night and one thing we should talk about, like a couple of the theaters we went to, the masking wasn't working in the theaters. And these are big LA theaters. And I think that's a lack of investment inside the theaters. I think that we got to make sure that the brightness is there. We got to make sure that all the speakers are working. We have to make sure the screens are in good condition. As it comes back and people get back to the theater, we have to remind them that it is a better experience than watching at home. We will do our part to get these movies into theaters. We will make sure we stand screen from the rooftops. This movie should be theatrical, but we have to make sure that when the audience shows up, that they're getting the experience that they deserve. You know, we I went to a theater, there was one person in concessions and the line was around the corner, right? You got to make sure your staff probably, all of those things as it comes back, got to make sure the customer experience delivers because they left their homes and they got there and we're all in it together, right? So that to me is without question the biggest X factor in this, what I hope is a rebirth of everybody getting excited about the theatrical experience right now. And especially when you look at, you know, Creed, then Us, now Shazam, then John Wick. Then you go into, there's a Transformers this summer, there's a Mission Impossible, there's crazy big movies. It's a massive market. And we just have to make sure the experience for the consumer is better than what they have at home with their 85-inch television. And that's the whole thing, right? There's people waiting. You can check out with your concessions in a timely manner. You sit down in the theater and the screen is in good condition. The light level is where it should be. The sound is fantastic. And the masking is working. Yeah, look, it, it is not an inexpensive experience for a family to go see a movie. And, and it, that's not lost on us as, as producers and filmmakers. And you just want to make sure that that they feel they got everything they wanted out of that experience and want to do it again. And I do believe in perfect conditions, there is no replacement for that experience. There's just not. And so it's just making sure that that experience for them, you know, we're here to make movies for them. I mean, that's what, you know, ultimately we want as many eyeballs to see it as possible, but we want them to enjoy it. We want them to recommend it to their friends to go out and do it and not wait and say, oh, you know, this is something I can wait a couple more weeks for and and watch. So it's really about that. William, Paul, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations once again. I'm hoping to see you guys back here for Scream 7. We're going to keep on booking this on the Monday after opening weekend. Let's see how much I we can have. Uh, that would be a nice, uh, <laughs> a nice thing. We would, we're in. Count us in. Thank you so much. And thanks again to our guests, William Chirac and Paul Neinstein, the producers of Scream 6, now in theaters. Rebecca, Polly, thank you very much also for joining us at the beginning of this episode. And thank you once again to you, our listeners. The Box Office Podcast is produced in collaboration by the Box Office Company, Box Office Pro, and Record Edit Podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe. Next week's episode, we're going to be going into a lot more detail on that Cinema Foundation report featuring an exclusive interview with the Cinema Foundation's president, Jackie Brenneman. That's coming up in next Thursday's episode. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, share. Tell everybody you know to listen to us. It helps us continue doing this every week. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you soon here on the Box Office Podcast.